This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I'm like, what is going on? This isn't making sense. This does not make sense. This is unbelievable. I thought for sure that they'd be on that and figure it out, but they didn't. And now it just, this whole thing was just such a huge mind blow. And then to know that it's because of the chief of police is even more mind-blowing. I was just in shock. Like, this world is so much bigger than us. A lot of people are so much bigger than us. And to know, like, she was part of this, just, and to know anybody had to go through this, like, why? You know? It's sad. It's terrible. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. How are we feeling on this fine Wednesday? I am feeling stoked to do part two of this series that we've been working so hard on. Yes. Today is part two of our three-part intensive on the Long Island serial killer. If you are a member of our Patreon, you will be listening to this with part one. Any multi-parter episodes that we do, we release them all on Patreon so you can binge and listen to them all together. But if not, you probably heard part one of this last week. And if you didn't, you need to go back and listen because you're going to be extremely confused. So last week we spoke with Amanda, who is Megan Waterman's sister, and she has never spoken publicly before until now. Right. And last week with part one, we also launched an initiative that's very near and dear to our hearts. It's called the Heavy Metal Project. And it's basically a fundraising initiative that we came up with in collaboration with a Long Island-based jewelry brand, Jimmy Toast. And last week, we released our first bonus episode on Friday, and we're doing this every Friday, and each one is going to focus on a victim of the Long Island serial killer, and we're going to be doing this for 10 weeks total. And Jimmy Toast designer, Jamie, has designed a necklace to commemorate the memory of each victim, and we're releasing these incredible necklaces with the bonus episodes in limited drops, and 100% of the net profits are being donated to Swap. USA, which is a sex workers outreach project. And just a little refresher, SWAP is a social justice network dedicated to the fundamental human rights of people involved in the sex trade and their communities focused on ending violence and stigma through education and advocacy. Beyond all of that, we talked about this last week, but just another reminder, the purpose of the Heavy Metal Project is about more than just donating to SWAP. It's about keeping these victims' memories alive. It's about keeping this case at the forefront of important media conversations. And it's really about combating the stigma of sex work in the media and in, you know, society. So all of this is really important and we hope you'll get involved best you can. All right. Well, I think we should just jump right in. Welcome to part two. The area in and around Gilgo Beach has been used to discard human remains for some period of time. There was no doubt in my mind that that was a serial killer. I wasn't surprised, actually, that they started finding bodies turning up along this road because it's very desolate. We want to catch this guy before another girl has to go missing and lose her life. We're going to find Shannon if it takes me the rest of my lifetime. This is not an episode of CSI. 
Throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, serial killers ran rampant in the United States. At some points, there were nearly 300 known serial killers, and that's to say nothing of the unknown ones. When people locked their doors at night, they were thinking about the BTKs, the Jeffrey Dahmers, and the Ted Bundys of the world. But today, things have changed. Between modern investigative practices and the invention of DNA analysis and advanced forensic technology, serial killers are much more scarce. The FBI estimates that there are probably fewer than 50 serial killers on the loose today in 2023. But some people wonder if the number of active serial killers hasn't actually decreased, and that instead, serial killers have just adapted. Nobody's snatching unsuspecting victims from their beds anymore. Now, what they're doing is they're targeting sex workers. So take this in. 50 years ago, only 16% of female victims of serial killers were sex workers. But today, over 70% of female victims of serial killers are sex workers. And this includes the Gilgo Four, four beloved women who became victims of the Long Island serial killer. They were Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Amber Lynn Costello. Each of them were about five feet tall. They were all in their 20s, and they were all loved. They all faced hardships, and they all grew up in difficult situations. And they all felt they had no other choice but to turn to sex work, and they advertised on Craigslist. They were all preyed on by a psychopath and strangled, wrapped in burlap, and placed 500 feet apart from one another on Long Island's Gilgo Beach. And when they were discovered, more victims were found too, because the Long Island serial killer didn't stop with the Gilgo Four. In fact, the Long Island serial killer may have had 10 or many more victims. And in this episode, which is part two of our series intensive, we're going to introduce you to all of them, including the young woman who started it all, 23-year-old Shannon Gilbert. In last week's episode, we told you that today's case started in June of 2010, and for Megan Waterman, it did. But for Shannon Gilbert, this case actually begins a month earlier on May 1st of 2010. At the same time the story unfolds, all of you are watching Iron Man 2 and Shrek Forever After. Music-wise, people were jamming out to Rihanna's Rude Boy. And around this time, ugh, oh my god, one of my favorite shows of all time, maybe my number one, Lost was about to air its season finale. What I would give to see that show with new eyes once again. Mm, me too. But the second setting for today's case is Gilgo Beach, New York. It's a very strange place, this Gilgo Beach, and I've been many times. And something I have to say before we even start describing it, when we describe it, it's going to sound really big. But it's really small. People speculate whether or not it could be a coincidence that several people have dumped remains here. And when you're there, it's like no fucking way. Like it is such a small, specific area that it's really creepy and eerie to realize that so much of this insidious stuff has gone on here. Basically, Gilgo Beach is a barrier beach on the eastern portion of Jones Beach Island, which is on the southern shore of Long Island, meaning it's a narrow strip of land that runs parallel to Long Island, but is separated by about two miles of water and the Great South Bay Bridge, which is how you drive there and get there. And there aren't any cities or really towns along Gilgo Beach. Really, what's close by, there's like like a beach stand where you can get snacks and stuff like that. And close by, there's also a wealthy community to the east, and that's called Oak Beach. And Gilgo Beach is open to the public, so anyone can go there, but people usually don't. It's an undeveloped area with thick brush and cold winds in the winter. And to get to the beach itself, you have to have four-wheel drive and a permit. And swimming in Gilgo Beach actually isn't allowed. There's only one highway that runs the length of Gilgo Beach. And other than that, there aren't many roads in the area. And when there are roads, they're poorly lit. At night, there aren't streetlights or anything like that. So people don't really gravitate towards the shores of Gilgo Beach unless they live close by or know someone who does or grew up going to this beach. It's a pretty remote and isolated area. And you met Megan Waterman's sister, Amanda, in last week's episode, and she's here with us today as well. And like we shared with you last week, Megan was a devoted mother, a caring sister, and an outstanding friend, and she was also a sex worker. And when Megan's remains were identified in January of 2011, Amanda was beyond heartbroken. There really isn't a word describing how learning something like this would feel. I dropped. 
I like legitimately dropped to my knees. It just didn't feel real. I wish it wasn't. At that time, Megan had been missing for seven months, but Amanda had still hoped that Megan was alive. After all, Megan was a really strong woman. She was tough. She was resilient. If anyone could survive a terrible situation, it was Megan. But one day, Amanda was on the phone with Megan's aunt, Liz, and they were discussing an upcoming fundraiser for Megan's investigation and the search for her. That conversation ended, and when Liz called Amanda back after their already lengthy first conversation, Amanda had this feeling, this bad feeling, that it wasn't going to be good news. We had just talked about another fundraiser that we were doing to put towards her reward. And like Liz and I only talked like periodically. We had just spoke and like we pretty much talked about everything that we had planned on talking about and we're set to see each other, you know. And then, I don't know, I didn't get a good feeling when I saw her phone number come up, but she told me that they found her. And I think that what sucks the most is that one of the detectives that was talking to Liz had hopes that Megan was alive. Not like I wanted her to be, you know, at the same time. Because I can only imagine what that poor girl would have been going through if she was. I felt like it was selfish of me in a way, you know, when she was missing for her to still be alive. Clearly, it wouldn't be good. But at the same time, I, like, couldn't imagine living my life without her. She was just such a huge, important person in my life. She was the most important person, like, connecting-wise. Like, she was there for me a lot. We literally did everything together. So it was, it was really hard. Amanda was stunned to learn that Megan's remains weren't found on their own and that she was one of four victims found in the area that was known as the Gilgo Four. And sadly, the Gilgo Four would just be the beginning. Within a year, 10 victims would be officially linked to the Long Island serial killer, along with many, many more potential victims. Oh my God, it was insane. I was just in shock. Like this world is so much bigger than us. A lot of people are so much bigger than us. And to know, like, she was part of this, just, and to know anybody had to go through this, like, why? You know? It's sad. It's terrible. There are so many unanswered questions. First of all, who did this? What kind of psychopath would do this? And for the love of God, why? Another question, is there one killer or multiple? And are there more victims that we still haven't connected to this case yet? And finally, when will the authorities catch the son of a bitch? To answer these questions, or at least try to, you know the drill, we gotta go back. 23-year-old Shannon Maria Gilbert dreamed of becoming a famous singer and an actress, but unfortunately that didn't pan out for her. Although she was a beautiful woman with a golden voice and great fashion, she also struggled with drug addiction, money trouble, and mental health issues. But Shannon needed to pay her rent somehow, so she reluctantly turned to sex work. Shannon knew that sex work wasn't a long-term solution, and she had plans to get out eventually. And she was also working on conquering her drug addiction. She commuted from her home in New Jersey to New York for auditions, and she'd started her bachelor's degree in communications. But the extra money from sex work was keeping Shannon's lights on. So she kept doing it, even after her family told her that they were worried about her safety. And on May 1st of 2010, Shannon met a new client, a 47-year-old man named Joseph Brewer. So Brewer had hired Shannon through her Craigslist ad, and she'd arrived at his home in the neighborhood of Oak Beach in Suffolk County, New York, around 2 a.m. And as a reminder, Oak Beach is the neighborhood, an only neighborhood, near Gilgo Beach, which is where the remains of these victims were found. Okay, so this is very close proximity where Shannon is seeing this John. So accompanying Shannon, she wasn't alone. She was driven there by her driver. And this guy also worked as a de facto security guard for her. And his name was Michael pack. And while Shannon went inside Brewer's house, Michael waited inside his vehicle for her to finish up. But he was basically there to just make sure everything was okay and make sure she came out of that house okay at the end of the night. Almost three hours after Shannon walked into Joseph Brewer's home, he claimed that Shannon began acting irrational and erratic. He said that he asked Shannon to leave, but she wouldn't. So Brewer called Shannon's driver, Michael, who was sitting outside in his car, and Michael came inside and tried to convince Shannon to go with him. But 
she wouldn't budge. Instead, she cowered behind Brewer's couch, scared and confused. Michael later told 48 Hours that he suspected that Shannon was faking a, quote, paranoid state because she didn't want to pay him his cut. But there's never been any evidence to suggest that that's true, and it really doesn't make any sense anyways. It makes zero sense, because how would acting crazy even get Shannon out of paying Michael? Because she needed Michael to drive her home. And I don't think people realize this, so... We're on the east end of Long Island here in Oak Beach. It would take her two hours to drive back to the city. Yeah. So this isn't like she can hail a cab. This is some dark, remote, rural shit. She needed this guy to get her home. There's no no chance she would stiff him under those circumstances. But either way, at that point, Shannon, for unknown reasons, was certain that something was wrong. So at 4.51 a.m., she actually called 911 from her cell phone. And this call was long. It was 23 minutes long, and it was strange. And we finally heard it last year after it was finally released after about 13 years or whatever. Insane. They refused to release it, and finally we've heard it, and it's pretty disturbing. She shifts rapidly between being calm, frightened, and totally unresponsive. And while still on the phone with 911, she actually becomes so freaked out that she starts running. She flees Brewer's house and runs into this Oak Beach neighborhood, and she starts knocking on doors. And I've been here, and I actually walked the route that Shannon went, and it is scary. I mean, these houses are far apart. It's dark. You can hear, like, the water, and there's all these, like, thick woods that kind of separate all these houses. It's a very strange place, and we'll post some pictures on our Instagram so you can get a, a sense of what it looks like here. But whatever you're picturing, it's probably not. It's very strange and weird here. So Gus Coletti, a retired insurance fraud investigator, was in the bathroom shaving when he heard Shannon screaming and banging on his front door. Gus let Shannon inside and asked her what was wrong, but Shannon couldn't give him a direct response, and she just kept asking for help. Concerned for Shannon's well-being, Gus calls 911, but Shannon took off running once again. She ran to yet another Oak Beach house, and this one belonged to a longtime resident, Barbara Brennan. And unlike Gus, Barbara didn't answer the door for Shannon, but she did call 911. But once again, Shannon bolted and took running off before anybody could figure out what was going on. And meanwhile, Michael Pack was still on Shannon's tail and was trying to follow Shannon in his black SUV as she just kept running. He saw her go to Gus and Barbara's houses, but after that, he lost sight of her. And according to Michael, he searched for Shannon for an hour and then left Long Island and headed back towards the city. And Shannon was never seen again. So when we're discussing this 911 call that wasn't released, the Suffolk County Police Department also wouldn't release the 911 calls made by Gus and Barbara. So these calls that were just made public last year, we're going to play a portion of them for you now because we had to speculate for all this time about the contents of these calls, but now you don't have to. But trigger warning, while there's no violence occurring on this call, this call is distressing. It could be upsetting. So if you don't want to hear it, Skip ahead till it's over. For those choosing to listen, you'll hear Shannon, two 911 operators, and two men. The men are Joseph Brewer, who's urging Shannon to leave, and Michael Pack, who Shannon refers to as Mike. State police. Yeah, there's somebody after me. I'm sorry? There's somebody after me. Where are you? There's somebody after me. Okay, where are you? There's somebody after me. Where are you, ma'am? I don't know. You're driving right now? No, I'm inside the house. I'm sorry? I'm inside the house. What house? I don't know. Can you trace where I am? I'm sorry? Can you trace where I am? No, I can't. Stop it, please. Please stop. Please. No, please. And what's what's wrong? Huh? What happened? These people are planning to kill me. Where in Long Island are you? I don't know. They're gonna kill me. Are you in a house? Are you in a house? Yeah. Whose house is it? I don't know. 
What's your name? Shannon Gilbert. What's your name? Shannon Gilbert. The police arrived at Oak Beach at 6.20 a.m., and this is 90 minutes after Shannon's 911 call, 55 minutes after Gus's call, and 40 minutes after Barbara's. Later, the Suffolk County police would blame this delay on Shannon. They said that she was unclear about her location, and, you know, they actually are right. She was. But the truth about what happened is kind of nobody's fault. When Shannon called 911, her call was rooted to the state police because she kept saying that she was at Jones Beach, which is a state park. So this would make this in New York State's police jurisdiction. So this is really where the confusion started because Shannon wasn't at Jones Beach. She was in Suffolk County in a neighborhood of Oak Beach. But like we said earlier, Oak Beach is remote. In fact, the closest Suffolk County police station was a 17-minute drive away from Oak Beach. But here's the thing. Shannon was calling from a cell phone. But Gus Coletti, the resident whose door she knocked on, was not. He called 911 around 5.15 a.m. He gave them an exact address, which was his home. So by our calculations, in a 2005 New York Times article bragging that Suffolk County Emergency Services can dispatch their responders in less than 60 seconds, that's a 5.45 arrival time at best. So it's not exactly lining up with what Suffolk County says they can do. And this means, you know, They had an exact address, so you can't blame the state police misrouted call confusion here. And as we all know, in an emergency situation, 30 minutes can be the difference between life and death. And to make matters worse, Gus Coletti told 48 Hours that when police did show up and talk to him about Shannon, they were completely unconcerned. Right. And, you know, for Unraveled, we interviewed law enforcement and they explained some stuff. And if you really, every hindsight is different, right? But yeah, they had the call from Gus. They didn't have the call from Shannon. They didn't have this 23 minute long call from her saying they're trying to kill me. So they only got Gus's call. So imagine that he's saying a woman who was upset, banged on his door, asking for help. They show up. No woman is there. She's gone. They think it's a domestic situation that's resolved itself. They think, a woman could have gotten into a fight with her boyfriend and ran off. Like these things happen. Yeah. In your twenties, they happen. Or maybe, you know, there's a lot of parties in this area. They think a woman who was at a party wandered off without her friends. So they don't have this gift of hindsight of knowing that this woman was in real danger. And, you know, Unraveled was about holding law enforcement accountable for their fuck-ups in this case. But I will say here, you know, I want to be objective and this doesn't actually seem that crazy given that we didn't know Long Island serial killer existed yet. We had no other information. This is just a crying girl banging on a door and maybe going back to where she came from, like from their perspective, you know? Yeah. So that being said, the police didn't take things any more seriously when they found out that these missing persons were sex workers. At one point, the police even told Newsday that missing sex workers were hard to investigate because of their, quote, transient lifestyle. But that's bullshit. Imagine if a female business executive who traveled regularly disappeared. You know, would the police call her lifestyle transient? It's just PR-friendly language for we view sex workers as second-class citizens. Two days after Shannon went missing, her boyfriend called her sister and explained that Shannon hadn't returned after her last appointment with a client. And right away, Shannon's family filed a missing persons report. And they waited for the police to contact them, to move, to do something. But eight days passed, and the authorities never reached out to them. Frustrated with the Suffolk County police's inaction, Shannon's family traveled 140 miles from their home in upstate New York to Long Island. Once they were there, they went to Oak Beach and handed out missing persons flyers with Shannon's photo. They spoke to over a dozen Oak Beach residents, including Joseph Brewer, and even found one of Shannon's earrings. But Shannon herself had disappeared without a trace. And for months and months, the Gilbert family said that they repeatedly contacted the Suffolk County Police Department, begging them to pursue Shannon's case seriously. And after it became apparent the Gilbert family wasn't going anywhere, the police did begin investigating. But it was slow going because Gilgo Beach is a nightmare to search. Large portions of the beach are covered in this dense layer of brush and five-foot-high reeds, standing water, and quicksand-like mud. There's a huge poison ivy problem when the weather is rainy and it's hard for cadaver dogs to be effective. It was easy to miss a clue, even if it was just a few feet away from a searching officer. But eight months after Shannon went missing on December 11th of 2010, an officer named John Malia and his police dog named Blue were doing some training exercises on Gilgo Beach. They were near the area where Shannon vanished on the off chance that they might just find something helpful. And surprisingly, 
they did. They found unburied human remains wrapped in burlap. Immediately, law enforcement officers figured this body belonged to Shannon. It had to, right? Who else could it be? But to everyone's horror, it didn't. And neither did the next body they found, or the next, or the next. Within a year, 10 bodies would be found on or near Gilgo Beach. And Shannon still wouldn't be one of them. Investigators then came to a horrible realization. There was a serial killer on Long Island, and Gilgo Beach was the killer's dumping ground. But still, one crucial question remained. Where was Shannon Gilbert? When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus, and I couldn't practice enough, and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. The discovery of the Gilgo Four led to one of the largest police investigations in New York's history. The Suffolk County Police, the Long Island Police, and the FBI led the search. They used planes, helicopters, aerial ladders, ATVs, scuba divers, cadaver dogs, and horses to meticulously comb Gilgo Beach's rough terrain. And thanks to this massive search effort, by the end of April of 2011, the authorities had recovered the human remains of six more people. And all of them are considered potential victims of the Long Island serial killer. There are so many victims connected to the Long Island serial killer case that, frankly, it can get a little confusing. So we're going to run you through the timeline of discovering each victim right now. And while we will introduce you to each victim, we're not going to go in depth into their life. But that's what those Friday release bonus episodes are for. So be sure to listen to those so you can learn and get to know each and every one of these women for who they were outside of this case. 
These women are important and they're missed. And we absolutely want to give each and every one of them the respect they deserve. Absolutely. So to recap, on December 11th of 2010, a Suffolk County police officer discovered the first set of remains on Gilgo Beach. Further investigation ensued, and two days later, on December 13th, three additional sets of human remains were recovered. All four bodies were unburied, wrapped in burlap, and placed exactly 500 feet apart. And for a while, these women were considered Jane Doe number one, two, three, and four. But by the end of the following month, they were identified. They were 24-year-old Melissa Bartholomew, 25-year-old Maureen Brainerd Barnes, 27-year-old Amber Lynn Costello, and Amanda, who we've been interviewing for this series, her sister, 22-year-old Megan Waterman. All four women were sex workers in their 20s who advertised online using Craigslist. And according to the Daily News and Newsday, all four women had been strangled. Similarities between the Gilgo Four were uncanny. It was obviously the work of a serial killer, but the Suffolk County Police downplayed the seriousness of the situation. They didn't release hardly any information to the public or name any suspects at all. ABC News reported that the then police commissioner, Richard Dorner, said, I don't want people to think we have a Jack the Ripper running around Suffolk County with blood dripping from a knife. This is an anomaly. But he was wrong. This wasn't an anomaly. It was a pattern. On March 29th of 2011... A police officer named Ed McDowell was driving a few miles east of the location where the Gilgo Four were discovered when he spotted a strange item hidden in the brush on the side of the road. This item turned out to be a bag filled with a dismembered skull, hands, and forearm of a new victim. This was Jane Doe number 5, and she was eventually identified as 20-year-old Jessica Taylor. Jessica, like all the other victims, was a sex worker. She was last seen at a bus terminal in New York City eight years prior, on July 21st of 2003. And this is the crazy part, and it gets a little wild, so brace yourselves. Jessica's body, a part of it at least, had already been discovered in a completely different location years before. This road leads to a Manorville sump, a sewage runoff basin. But today it led a woman and her dog to a gruesome discovery, a partially decomposed female, naked body, or what was left of it. The victim had been decapitated and both her hands were cut off. The body appears to have been dumped at that location. Police say the body was found right there in that wooded area, about 300 feet back from here, Halsey Manor Road, just north of the LIE. Police also say whoever committed this crime made no effort to conceal or hide the body. There was no sign of a struggle at the scene and no other evidence, no clothes, blood or body parts. It doesn't seem that uh, um, they really were concerned that the body would have been found. It certainly would not be a place you would put a body if uh, you were looking to hide it. The Suffolk County Medical Examiner now has the victim's remains. Police say they believe she was Caucasian but don't know her age. They say her body was too badly decomposed to venture a guess at how long she may have been in the woods before she was discovered this morning. On July 26 of 2003, a woman was walking her dog on an access road near a small town called Manorville. It's on Long Island, about 45 miles east of Gilgo Beach. The woman found Jessica's body unburied and placed on a piece of plastic. Jessica was nude, headless, and had no hands. And whoever killed Jessica had gone great lengths to hide her identity. One of her tattoos, which was a red heart with angel wings and the words Remy's angel, had been carefully mutilated with a sharp instrument. But the police were able to piece together Jessica's tattoo, which led to her successful identification sometime around January of 2004. Okay, so now we're going to go back, fast forward to April of 2011, when these discoveries on Gilgo Beach were unfolding. So police had just discovered the remains of Jessica Taylor a few days prior. And the public is outraged by this point with news of yet another victim. Now more than ever, the authorities were motivated to figure out what the heck was going on here. So on April 4th of 2011, over 120 law enforcement officers searched over 10 square miles of this part of Long Island, and this included portions of both Gilgo Beach and Manorville, where Jessica's torso had originally been found in 2003. And this is what's crazy. As a result, they find three more sets of human remains, all along Ocean Parkway between Oak Beach and Gilgo Beach. 
One set of these human remains belonged to a woman who was only known as Jean Doe Number 6 for almost a decade. But in May of 2020, the Suffolk County Police Department successfully identified these remains as 24-year-old Valerie Mack. Valerie was a sex worker who was last seen in the summer of the year 2000. When Valerie's adoptive parents hadn't heard from her for a few months, they tried to file a missing persons report with their local police department, but the officers wouldn't let them. They said that Valerie was over 21, so she probably wasn't missing, and she just didn't want to be found. It's unclear if these officers knew that Valerie was a sex worker, but Valerie's parents knew. And they probably told officers when they were trying to report Valerie missing. And this is probably why the police were kind of like, you know, Valerie's probably fine. Don't worry about it at all. And that's awful because had Valerie's family been able to file a missing persons report, who knows how the list case could have or would have developed. Because on November 19th of 2000, this is three years before Jessica Taylor's torso was found. Valerie's nude torso was discovered wrapped in plastic bags, also in Manorville, close to where Jessica's was discovered. Her head, hands, and one leg had been cut off. And if you're like, whoa, that's like identical to what happened to Jessica Taylor. Yeah, you're right. It is identical. It's almost as though a pattern is emerging, right? So there's no doubt that Valerie and Jessica are connected. It's undoubtedly the case. In fact, Valerie and Jessica's remains that were found on Gilgo Beach in 2011 were also found near each other. As in, the killer took the same highway exit when he hid their bodies. First, he hid Valerie's body there in the year 2000, and then Jessica in 2003. But since Valerie hadn't been reported missing and she wasn't identified until 2020, nobody knew these were her remains. And so, no one knew about all of these similarities between her and Jessica and that they were both sex workers in their 20s with similar physical builds. And no one suspected that the Long Island serial killer was at large. Yeah, it's like a sick and horrible butterfly effect situation. If one thing had been done differently years ago, would we have already caught this killer? It's impossible to know for sure. The second set of remains found on April 4th of 2011 belonged to a person who was biologically male, but was found wearing women's clothing. So law enforcement, I think pretty mistakenly, has referred to them as Asian male since the discovery of these remains. But there's a good chance that this victim has been misgendered since their discovery. So we're going to refer to them as Gilgo Beach Doe. And Gilgo Beach Doe was Asian, between 17 and 23 years old, 5 feet 6 inches tall, and missing some teeth. And they may have had a musculoskeletal disorder that affected how they walked. And although forensic technicians were able to recover Gilgo Beach Doe's DNA and police also released a composite sketch of what they might have looked like, Gilgo Beach Doe has never been identified. Medical examiners determined that their cause of death was homicide by a blow to the head, which was different from the LISC's trademark method of strangulation. But according to the Doe Network, it's possible that Gilgo Beach Doe was a sex worker and was murdered when their client realized that they weren't a cisgender woman. Perhaps Lisk deviated from their preferred methods out of anger. And the last set of remains found on April 4th of 2011 belonged to a female toddler who is now known as Baby Doe or Toddler Doe. So Baby Doe was between one and four years old and was possibly black or multiracial. And she was wrapped in a blanket with two gold-colored hoop earrings and she was wearing a necklace. And while Baby Doe's cause of death is officially homicide, we don't know how it happened. And Experts believe that Baby Doe was killed in 1997, and still, Baby Doe has yet to be identified. At first, investigators thought that Jane Doe number 6, who was later identified as Valerie Mack, was Baby Doe's mother. After all, their remains were placed very close together, but this ended up being a mistake, because Baby Doe's mother was uncovered a week later, along with yet another set of human remains. On April 11th of 2011, the police found a plastic bag a few miles west of Gilgo Beach, and this bag contained a woman's dismembered arms and legs, along with two gold-colored bracelets. She was probably Black or multiracial and between the age of 16 and 30 years old, and she had several distinguishing marks, including a six-inch scar on her lower abdomen, possibly from a C-section, and a small heart-shaped peach tattoo with a bite taken out of it on her left breast. And because of this unique tattoo... This victim is typically referred to as Peaches, and Peaches is Baby Doe's mother. And once again, detectives were able to match Peaches' DNA to a set of previously found human remains. 
14 years before, in June of 1997, Peach's torso was discovered in a green Rubbermaid bin in Hampstead Lake State Park. The Rubbermaid bin was 14 miles from where Peach's arms and legs were later uncovered in 2011. Her cause of death was ruled homicide, but the exact method of death is unknown. And on December 13th of 2016, the police matched Peach's DNA to Baby Doe. They were almost certainly mother and daughter. And this shocked law enforcement officers because Peach's remains and Baby Doe's remains were the furthest separated out of all of Lisk's victims. Yeah, actually, Peach's body was actually found across the county line in Nassau County. So that's technically Nassau County's case. So, for example, if you go to the Gilgo News website, that is Suffolk County. It's a Suffolk County-run website. You won't see that victim on there because that's technically not in their jurisdiction. It's chaotic, though. Can you imagine in real time just finding one victim after the next in this way and realizing it's like, oh, my God, we've had this woman's torso since 1997? Yeah. my God. Crazy. And it also shows you how incredible of a dumping ground this was and why they would have kept using it. To really underscore this, we've got another dismembered victim with her torso left in one location and the more identifying remains, right? Like head, hands, these kinds of things found near Gilgo Beach. This is almost exactly what happened to Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor, only in this case, in Peach's case, her torso was completely on the opposite side of the island, closer to the city. But still, Somebody put the torso in one place and the other parts here in this very specific, tiny location. And investigators suspect that Peaches was a sex worker who took baby Doe with her while meeting a client because she couldn't find childcare. And you have to wonder why Lisk chose to separate the mother and daughter's bodies when it would have been, you know, logistically easier to just leave them together. Some people speculate that something more personal could have been going on. Maybe Lisk was personally motivated to spite Peaches somehow, so that even in death, she couldn't be near her daughter. Since Peaches' skull was never recovered, the police couldn't create a composite sketch to help identify her. And to this day, Peaches' identity remains unknown. So the same day that authorities found Peaches' arms and legs, they also discovered another woman's skull. This was Jane Doe number 7, but she's more commonly referred to as Fire Island Jane Doe. And that's because her DNA matched Another set of remains found on a different beach, this time Blue Point State Beach on Fire Island, which is about 17 miles east of Gilgo Beach. So in April of 96, this is what's so crazy to me. Like, it spans so much time. Yeah. And every time they're, except with the Gilgo Four, the remains are separated, you know? Like, it's just mind-blowing how kind of consistent this MO gets until we get to the Gilgo Four. So in 96, some people are walking on this beach and they came across a pair of severed legs wrapped in plastic. Like, what a fucking traumatizing discovery. Yeah. Based on Fire Island Jane Doe's legs and skull, forensic experts know that she was a white woman and she was somewhere between 35 and 50 years old. And she had three scars on her right leg and one scar on her left. And her toes were painted with red nail polish. Fire Island Jane Doe's torso and hands have never been found, but since we have her skull, the police were able to publish a composite sketch of her face. But she, like Gilgo Beach Doe, Peaches, and Baby Doe haven't been identified yet. And since Fire Island Jane Doe was likely murdered in 1996, near the time her legs were recovered, she might have been Lisk's first victim. And even though her legs were found farther away on Fire Island, she's still connected to Lisk's case because, among other reasons, her skull was discovered just a few miles west of Gilgo Beach. And if you're getting lost in all these places we're throwing at you, that's okay. Gilgo Beach, Jones Beach, Oak Beach, Blue Point Beach, it's a lot of beaches. We'll put a picture of these locations and where the bodies and remains were discovered on our Instagram, which is at the first degree. But the basic idea is this. These 10 victims' bodies were found within a several-mile stretch along this highway on the south shore of Long Island, and all of them were likely sex workers, obviously excluding Baby Doe, right? And they were all murdered in the span of one lifetime. Lawrence Kablinski, a forensic scientist at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, told Newsday, the human remains are clearly linked. The odds are unthinkable that it's not the same individual. And of course, there's a chance that these victims were murdered by multiple people. But when you see the map of the bodies, you'll really understand that these 10 victims were placed way too close together for it to be a mere coincidence. And there are plausible theories as to why the Long Island serial killer's MO could have evolved over time. 
Right. And this is actually kind of a theory that I came up with when we were on Long Island investigating aspects of this case. So when you think about it, the dismemberment and the dismembered victims were the earlier victims, right? We have Valerie yeah. Mack in 2000. We have Jessica Taylor in 2003. And we have Peaches in, you know, in the 90s. And what he's doing is he's separating the torso from the identifying things like the skull and the hands, yeah. things that could make identification easier. So my theory was, he's like, I'm too scared to put a whole body in my car. But if I get rid of this big part here, and then I take the head and the hands with me and separate it, like that I can put in a bag. So even if I get pulled over, like, what are the odds they're gonna make? Let me search your bags. Right, right. So my thinking was his early cases, he was scared and he was separating the torsos from the limbs. And these torsos are being found right away. Jessica Taylor, Valerie Mack, they found them in days. And he's seeing that, wow, these torsos are being found in these other locations, but nobody's finding what I'm dumping on Gilgo Beach, which is the head and the hands. Yeah. So eventually he does this a few times and possibly before this, before Jessica Taylor, Peaches and Valerie Mack. And then when he gets to the Gilgo Four, he's like, still not a single body part has been found on this stretch of Ocean Parkway. So it might be worth it for him to take the risk of driving this body out there and throwing them where he puts up all these other things and they're not found. Yeah. You know, until Shannon Gilbert goes missing and she's the reason these women are found. And Dominic Verone, who was the chief homicide officer at the time, he was head of the homicide division in the Suffolk County Police Department, said, he's like, you don't understand if Hurricane Sandy had come before we found these people, we probably never would have found anyone. Because Gosh, uh, the yeah. coastline changed, everything got, either got buried or like flooded, and it would have maybe changed our ability to find them at all. So it is really interesting. And it's like, it's just happenstance that these people were discovered. So it really was a perfect dumping ground. And for this person at John Jay University to agree and say like the odds that it's more than one person, like I tend to agree. Oh, absolutely. And your theory makes complete sense, right? Like they're finding these torsos the day after he puts it there, but no one's finding these things he's putting in this spot. So he's like, cool, I'll just put the whole body there. No. And he got away with it for so long and they didn't find things for so long. So he was probably like, why not? Right. And I think what people also need to hear, and I need to spell this out, is that one of the Gilgo Four went missing after Shannon's disappearance. If Shannon's disappearance had gotten more media attention, I doubt this killer would have put this fourth body there. I doubt he would have killed a fourth person. And like, this is the kind of shit we're talking about with sex workers, like going missing, needing more coverage. Had Shannon's shit got more publicity, you think he would have put a fourth person there? I don't. Mm -mm. If they knew he was searching that area, if that was widely publicized, like, this shit's important. Yeah. Either way, even if the Long Island serial killer turns out to be two killers or three killers or five killers or 20 killers, it doesn't really matter. The result is the same. They all or he needs to be stopped. Because right now, the bone-chilling truth is there's at least one serial killer loose on Long Island, and he's still there. He's watching. He's waiting. He's maybe even listening to this podcast. And there's no knowing when or where he'll strike again. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. From May of 2010 to May of 2011, this case that began with Shannon Gilbert and Megan Waterman's disappearances had become so much bigger than anybody could have ever predicted, including our first degree Amanda. 
I, I assumed that this was going to be solved. I did not think that this was going to go even a year. You have that many bodies and no evidence, no nothing. These girls just walked off the face of the earth. That's literally what it seems like. And they have nothing. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. It really, really is. The entire country was baffled. Two decades of murders, at least 10 potential victims, maybe more. County police, state police, and the FBI were investigating. But there wasn't a single shred of evidence pointing to a killer. No clues, no suspects, and no nothing. What the actual fuck was going on? This was the most publicized serial killer case in years. For weeks, articles about the Long Island serial killer's victims were front page news, but the coverage of the List case was not the most tasteful journalism. Reporters focused heavily on the victims' jobs as sex workers. And sure, you know, it is relevant to the List case to include that information, but over and over again, headlines were written and there were something like this. No answer in the case of missing hooker and Craigslist prostitutes murdered by serial killer. They were way more crass than they should have been for a missing woman who was, you know, maybe a teacher. And the articles themselves weren't any better. The headlines, sex worker, prostitute. She was a daughter. She was a mother. She was a sister. She was a person. She, like, was so much more than just that. And I get they need to, you know, put it out there so they know, you, you know, but, like, don't put that as a freaking headline. You know, you want to include it in there. That's, you know, that's obviously what led her, you know, to where she is. But unfortunately, but don't don't put that as your headline. Maybe so angry. If you read the Sunday paper, you might not have known that these women were people outside of their sex work, that they had families, children, hobbies, and aspirations. They weren't defined by their sex work, but had you read only these articles, you'd think so didn't even define who she was, not even close. I mean, everybody has their stereotypes or whatever, but I mean, she was a great person inside and out. She was just beautiful. And I was literally like the luckiest person in the world to have her first. I really was. I just came and explained it. She was just simply amazing. I loved everything about her. I loved her personality. She was very real, very, very outgoing, very fun, very energetic, very everything. At the beginning of Megan Waterman's disappearance, the public's response was overwhelmingly negative because of the fact that she was a sex worker. Megan's mother, Lorraine, remembered that the internet comments on news articles were particularly harsh. She described them by saying, They were like, if her mother and father were any type of parents, they would have never let her get into this, and she deserves what she gets. Stuff like that. I try not to pay attention to it. You're not going to change how people feel, no matter how much you tell them. Amberlyn Costello's sister, Kimberly Overstreet, told the Daily News, Nobody deserves what happened to these girls. They weren't just some prostitutes off Craigslist, but somebody's family member, somebody's aunt, and somebody's daughter. But while the general public disparaged Megan and the other victims for their sex work, there were some advocates and organizations who were genuinely concerned for the sex workers' well-being. And they made public announcements warning sex workers near the Long Island area to be especially careful with new clients, which made a lot of sense. Because it seemed like day after day, the police were finding yet another sex worker's remains on Long Island. Each time police announced that there was a new body, the families of missing sex workers from across the United States submitted their DNA samples and dental records to help identify these victims. And then they waited with bated breath, hoping for an answer but hoping the answer was no, it's not your loved one. That's a really scary dichotomy, as you probably can all imagine thinking of your own loved ones and what a nerve-wracking process it would be. Before the Gilgo Four were identified, Megan's mother, Lorraine, told Newsday, I'm pretty devastated right now. I'm hoping it's not my daughter. But Megan's aunt said, it's hard. The not knowing part, none of us want to hear that she's gone or that it's her, but the not knowing, that's awful too. Megan was the first of the Gilgo Four to be identified. And when the information came to light, Shannon Gilbert's sister, 23-year-old Sherry, reached out to Megan's mother, Lorraine, via Facebook. And Sherry wrote, your family is in my prayers, don't give up. And from there, Megan Waterman's family forged an unexpected friendship with Shannon Gilbert's family. They encouraged each other, recommended private investigators, helped moderate Shannon's missing person website, and shared resources throughout the investigation. And Shannon's mother, Mary, told Newsday that she had maintained strong relationships with all of the Gilgo Forest families. 
Right. Because remember, at this point, they still hadn't found Shannon, and she was the reason all of these people were found. And this search for her had prompted the discovery of this case as a whole. And as far as the family's connecting, that is a good thing that they did because the Lisk investigation feels never-ending because it hasn't ended. The police's search area kept expanding and expanding, and the amount of tips they received from the public was overwhelming. Information management alone took a huge amount of time and a ton of resources. But finally, 18 months after Shannon went missing, there was a new lead, or at least that's what police told everyone. On December 4th of 2011, the same Suffolk County police officer who found the Gilgo Four's remains, John Malia, discovered some of Shannon's belongings in a marsh near Oak Beach. It was Shannon's purse, her ID, her lip gloss, shoes, and jeans. And this discovery spurred further investigation into the area, and three days later, detectives found Shannon's cell phone. At this point, police told the public that they were determined to find Shannon. And the Suffolk County Police Commissioner, Richard Dorner, said, she's in there someplace and we're going to do everything that we can to find her. On December 13th of 2011, which happened to be the same day that they recovered three of the Gilgo Four a year prior, the Suffolk County Police discovered 23-year-old Shannon Maria Gilbert's remains. The county's medical examiner listed her cause of death as undetermined. But when Commissioner Dorner gave the public his thoughts about how Shannon died, they were wild. Right. So Dormer, he told the public that he believed that Shannon died by accidental drowning. Yeah, you heard that right. Accidental drowning. So the technical term that they used, at least, is her cause of death was death by misadventure. So the theory at the time was that Shannon had gone running from Joseph Brewer's house and had actually crawled into the tall reeds of the marsh and she kept crawling And she was so hysterical that she got naked and took her clothes off and drowned in ankle-high standing water. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So Dormer, you know, he was adamant that it didn't sound like anyone was trying to kill Shannon. Needless to say, Shannon's family and many others, including me, I mean, they're not buying it. In fact, Suffolk County Police Department, if you go to their website about this case, they don't believe... They don't list Shannon as a victim in this case. We are considering her one in our series. She's going to be number one of these special episodes we're doing on Fridays. But Suffolk County Police is standing by their their theory that she's not connected to this case. Even though she's a small, five-foot-tall sex worker who advertised on Craigslist and who went missing a stone's throw from where these bodies were found in this very remote area. I mean, it's just a little inconvenient. Yeah, no shit. And also remember in the beginning of the episode when Shannon said they're trying to kill me in that 911 phone call because Shannon's family remember that moment. And Shannon's mother, Mary, was incredibly suspicious about the location where Shannon's body and her items were found. And this is because it was only three quarters of a mile away from where Shannon was last seen. So you're telling us that after a year and a half of investigating with three law enforcement agencies, nobody ever looked around where she was missing, an area within a mile of Shannon's last known whereabouts. Right. And it's like they discovered her purse and her cell phone. I'm like, all of these things. You searched within 50 miles and you didn't look in less than a mile, like in this neighborhood. It just seemed really, people were really pissed about this. Yeah. Um, Because it seemed like how did you miss this evidence? How did you miss these clothing items? How did you miss her purse and her cell phone? Like, how is that even possible? It's been 18 months. Well, and it's not like it's like some tiny little shred of evidence. Like, those are massive items. Absolutely. So something isn't adding up, right? And mom of Shannon, Mary, she wondered, and, you know, this is her. This isn't me speaking. But she wondered if this was a situation where things had been planted. And if this was the case, Did Suffolk County police know more about what happened to Shannon than they were letting on? And that's when the real whispers of a cover-up began. And trust me, I'm all behind the truth that there was a cover-up here. I'm not sure that there was one in this case. Mary told Newsday Shannon was running. She was screaming for help. Somebody was chasing her. Someone put her in that water. It was no accident. Again, Mary believes this. I'm not sure um, that this is true. I've never even heard rumors that these items were planted. But what I have heard and what I suspect myself 
is that this is neglect and incompetence because she's a sex worker, right? And is this carelessness of missing this evidence, not looking for her thoroughly, an implication of the fact that Shannon was a missing sex worker, which is sort of the theme of the series that we're doing. Right. And Shannon's family ended up doing an independent autopsy and the medical examiner noticed that Shannon's body was almost fully intact. She was only missing a few of her smaller bones, including her fingers, her toes, and two bones from her neck, one of which was her hyoid bone. And the state of that bone helps determine whether strangulation could have occurred. These neck bones would have been the key to determining if Shannon had been strangled, but they were just mysteriously missing. So as I'm sure you can understand, Shannon's family had a lot of questions, many, many questions, like why wasn't Shannon's client, Joseph Brewer, a suspect in this case? And then there was another Oak Beach resident who raised a lot of red flags, and we're going to get into way more next week. The first glaring one is that a resident, his name's Dr. Peter Hackett, he actually made strange phone calls to Shannon's mother the day after she vanished. It was super weird. On this call, he told Shannon's mother that he ran a home for Wayworld Girls and that he was like caring for Shannon. It's bizarre. Brace yourselves. We'll get there next week, but we're running out of time today. But another thing to know about Peter Hackett, he also had ties to the Suffolk County Police Department, and he was categorized as what's called a police surgeon. Um, With all of this, it really felt like someone was hiding something, almost as though the Suffolk County Police Department was hiding something. And it felt like that because they absolutely were. By like 2014, I'm like, what is going on? This isn't making sense. This does not make sense. This is unbelievable. I thought for sure that they'd be on that and figure it out, but they didn't. And now it just, this whole thing was just such a huge mind blow. And then to know that it's because of the chief of police is even more mind blowing. It's like, what? This is, it's bigger than us, way bigger than us. So if you haven't listened to Unravel, this is what this is about. The police and political corruption connected to all of this. Because as soon as Shannon remains were found, a new chief of police was appointed. And his name was James Burke. And the timing is suspicious. Right after her remains are found, this new guy's put in a place. All the old higher brass of this police department are fired or demoted. And that's what happens. But the thing is, when you look at James Burke's history... He never should have been made police chief. He had a million infractions on his record. It's really bizarre. But like we said, you'll learn way more about that next week. Either way, from the beginning, the Long Island serial killers victims were at a huge disadvantage. The one group of people who should care the most about their missing person status, the police, seemed to not care very much at all. And at first, it seemed like that was just a nationwide law enforcement issue, a bias that is deeply rooted in our country's views on sex and sex work. Authorities in general just don't worry about sex workers the way they do other missing people. But apparently that goes double for the Suffolk County Police Department. So in part three on our coverage of the list case, we'll expose the hidden underbelly of this community of Oak Beach that we've told you a little about through these two episodes so far. There's police corruption, wrongful arrests, secret sex parties, snuff pornography, and much more. So obviously, if you're on Patreon, episode three is already there. And if you're not, that's okay, because you'll get episode three next week. Once again, if you have any information pertaining to Megan's case or the Long Island serial killer investigation, please contact Suffolk County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS. There's a $50,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. Don't miss the 10 bonus episodes that we started releasing Friday. Each one will do a deep dive on the life or what we know of of each of the victims. They were more than just sex workers. They were people with passions and loved ones and dreams, and we should learn about them. They deserve better than what they've gotten. These bonus episodes are part of our heavy metal project initiative and coincide with an amazing fundraiser that we've launched with jewelry brand Jimmy Toast. They've designed a necklace dedicated to, inspired by, and named after each of the victims. And 100% of the net profits from the sales of these pieces are being donated to Swap USA, which is a sex workers outreach project. 
and we're gonna keep saying this, the purpose of these necklaces is not just about raising money, but also to create tangible vehicles to keep conversations about these women going and keeping these victims' memories alive. And to learn more about Swap, to learn more about what we're doing, to get a necklace, to shop Heavy Metal Project's collection, visit theheavymetalproject.com. And finally, a huge thank you to Amanda for being with us again this episode. Again, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing your story with us. Absolutely, because, you know, these conversations were not easy for her. Um, She's been through hell. She's still going through hell, but she desperately wants justice for her sister, and she very much deserves it. Absolutely. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Thank you, Andrea. Sources from this episode can be found at the end of part one. But as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.